Welcome to episode nine of Röntgen's Radio, a physics and engineering and medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Gemma Bale, and I'm here with Dr. Jamie Guggenheim. We're meeting researchers to learn about the latest development in medical physics and biomedical engineering. This week, we're talking to Dr. Ellie Martin, Senior Research Fellow in Biomedical Ultrasound at UCL. Enjoy. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Jamie. So uh, biomedical ultrasound. What is ultrasound and how are you using it? Okay, so I guess in general terms, then ultrasound is sound that's above the threshold of human hearing. So that's normally given as like 20 kilohertz and above. But the kind of ultrasound that we're using, which is often used for medical imaging or for medical therapies, is, is quite a bit higher in frequency than that. So for imaging, it's normally above one megahertz, so maybe like a few megahertz up to like 20 or maybe even higher if you're imaging something really small. And then for therapies, yeah, kind of around that as well. So I guess most people know about ultrasound because it's used to image babies um, Mm. before they're born. Um, This is often where people have met ultrasound before. You send the sound into the body and then it reflects from all the different structures inside the soft tissues of your body and sends echoes back. And those are picked up and used to form an image. Why is it we know ultrasound for babies, but not so much for other things? Yeah, that is a good question. I guess it's just because it's one of those common things that, you know, everyone who's had a baby has had an ultrasound. But it is used for imaging an awful lot of things. So for imaging the abdominal organs, the heart, it's used for imaging the blood vessels in your arms and legs and your neck. It's used increasingly now as well for looking at musculoskeletal problems, looking at muscles and joints and things like that. And then also for things like injections and guiding needle biopsies and things like that. There's a lot of different imaging applications. Some people have had those kind of ultrasounds, but I suppose the one that most people can grasp straight away is this use for babies. The other thing is that if you've had an ultrasound on your foot vessel, you're not going to be showing it off as much as you would if you've got a baby (laughs) ultrasound picture. That might be true, yeah. Those are kind of the images that get shared around the most. Um, Yeah, true. I have a vision of a group of people sort of cooing over a picture (laughs) of somebody's foot vessel. Yeah, here's my carotid artery, take a look. Yeah. Yeah, but it's good for imaging babies because the ultrasound is non-ionising. It's not like having an x-ray where you get some kind of radiation dose, which could be harmful. Mm. Um, So there's no side effects, really. It works out well for imaging the structures in the body because of the frequencies that we use and the size of the structures and the properties of the tissue. So do you have to match the frequencies to the structures that you want to image? Yeah, generally, yeah. If you want to image something smaller, then you use higher frequency beams of sound and you can get better resolution. But if you want to look deeper into the body, then you use a lower frequency because the sound travels further without being absorbed and dissipated. Okay, cool. But you don't do ultrasound imaging, you do ultrasound therapy. Yeah, so I don't work on imaging, I work on using ultrasound to do therapy instead. So what does that involve? There's lots of different types of ultrasound therapy and it's increasing all the time, really, the different applications. But basically, instead of sending the sound in and making an image from echoes that you receive, we're kind of sending sound in to have some effect on something in the body. So I guess the most common types of ultrasound therapies would be things like high intensity focused ultrasound where you focus the sound very tightly into a small region of tissue and it just very quickly increases the temperature so much that you start to destroy the cells. So you can use that kind of thing to burn or kind of ablate cancerous tumours and you can literally burn them out. And that's increasingly used. Prostate cancer is is a big application for that one. And then uterine fibroids as well is something that's treated using that kind of therapy. You're literally just kind of like removing some of the volume of this kind of benign growth. 
yeah, lots of other applications, the breast, um, kidney, pancreas and brain as well they're starting to do. So you said before you have to choose your ultrasound frequency to go deep enough. How do you make sure that you're targeting the unhealthy tissue and preserving the healthy tissue? In these machines, basically, you have some transducer, which is made of multiple array elements. So like lots and lots of small sources, which you place together in some arrangement. And by firing them at slightly different times, you can decide where you want the sound to be focused. So normally in those machines, they have some kind of image guidance, so like maybe in, the whole thing is done inside an MRI scanner. So you literally look at the image, or the clinician looks at the image and picks out the target region, and then they kind of click on it. And then the big ultrasound transducer places its focus to align with that point. It's kind of done in that kind of point and shoot way where they pick a target and then they heat it up a little bit and they have a look using MR thermometry to check that they're in the right place. And if they're not, they move it and then they kind of paint out this area with these small focal regions. So that's how they can decide. That's one type of therapy, which is quite common. You're just depositing energy that's heating up the tissue. But then there are other types of therapies. So one that we work on is ultrasonic neuromodulation in the brain. So in this one, you're not trying to destroy the tissue or damage it in any way, but you're trying to affect how the cells are functioning to maybe stimulate an area of the brain that's not really firing properly or to suppress some activity that you don't want. So maybe if someone's got epilepsy, for example, then part of their brain might be kind of firing and causing some effect that you don't want. So you, you want to try and stop that. So how does sound interact with the neurons? It sounds like a hard thing to do. So, Yeah, so the, the mechanisms are not really 100% understood at the moment. It hasn't really reached the clinic yet. It's still in the sort of research stages. So people are starting to look at these studies and they can show that there's some effect by measuring like brain activity in some other way with EEG or, or something like that. And then getting somebody to do a task, for example, like look at a visual stimulus. So look at some flashing shapes on a computer screen. And then do that when you're not doing any ultrasound and then add some ultrasound and see if there's any change in how your brain responds to those flashing lights to see if you're affecting the, the brain function. But yeah, doing that in the brain is a kind of interesting problem because you have to get the ultrasound through the skull. Yeah, because as far as I kind of my basic understanding of ultrasound was that it's really hard to do through into the brain because the skull blocks a lot of the sound. So how do you get around that? Yeah, that's true. So we use a lower frequency of sound, first of all, because the absorption of it in the skull bone itself is, is smaller. So more of it can pass through. And the, the other problem that the skull has is as well as just absorbing some of the sound and stopping it from traveling through, it also distorts the ultrasound field. So if you try and have this focus, so a lot of these transducers are like, they're basically shaped like a bowl. So the sound points to the, the center. If you imagine they're part of a sphere, the sound is focused at the center of that. So if you try to do focusing in that way, that there's a skull in the way, then it distorts that and then you, you end up with it not focusing properly. That's kind of less of a problem as you go to lower frequencies, there's sort of less distortion. So if you want to have a very simple setup for doing it, then you just have one bowl-shaped transducer and you just accept that there's going to be some distortion and then place that on the head and there we go. But the equipment that we're building has more capability to correct for that distortion. So we can work out how to compensate for the distortion that the skull induces by working out how the sound will be delayed and compensating for that. Would you take like a CT or an MRI of the patient's head and then figure out where you think the sound would focus without any correction and then work out how you would have to correct it based on the anatomy? Or is yeah, that what you do? Yeah, that's the kind of thing we do. So we have some information about the patient's anatomy, a CT scan or an MRI scan. And then you can use the CT scan as the information that we need for the ultrasound to predict where the sound will go because it tells us something about the density of the tissue. And we can kind of work out what we think the sound speed might be as well. So what you basically do is pinpoint where you want your focus to be 
and then almost play the sound backwards from that Mm. point outwards onto the surface of your transducer array and then you find out when all the sound arrives and then you basically compensate for those differences and then when you send it back in it should arrive back at the same focus. Ellie we talked about ultrasound being very high-pitched sound from a physical perspective in order to try and understand these interactions that are going to happen when it's used in therapy and imaging what is sound? So it's basically sort of mechanical vibration, right? So you have something that the source of your sound, which often generated by materials, which when you apply a voltage, they change shape. So they vibrate basically. So the surface moves in and out. And then if you couple that to something, it could be air or it could be a tissue in the body or something like that, then it literally moves the particles in the tissue backwards and forwards. And the wave sort of propagates. Most like if you have a slinky, you know, ping one end of it and then the wave sort of travels along it. That's, that's what's happening. So you're vibrating the particles in the medium and the wave is is travelling along. It's not moving the particles with it, but the energy is being transferred. You could want to imagine a very long slinky. The sound would be the wave that moves along it. Yeah, yeah. That's quite a helpful description. Okay. You mentioned megahertz. I just wonder if it's worth defining megahertz. Yeah, so I said that the threshold of human hearing, so there's sort of the highest pitch squeak that can be heard by probably a small child, is at 20 kilohertz. So that means it's like 20,000 vibrations per second. So when we talk about megahertz, we mean they're moving backwards and forwards a million times a second. Right, so that's it's an awful lot. If I'm visualising my sound slinky, transmitting this sound across. Yeah. That's, that's you quite... You won't be able to see it. No. <laughs> It's extremely fast, isn't it? And I, I guess there's some logic in that. Most of the things we, or, or at least we could relate it to when you see things vibrating that generate sounds, they tend to, they're, they're audible sounds, so we're used to slow vibrations that we can see. I don't Yeah, like, like, like if you see a speaker out. moving or something, then you, often you can see the surface literally going backwards and forwards. Yeah, I'm picturing like a pneumatic drill that I can see vibrate, or or maybe I can't quite, but I can hear it as a sort of rumble. I find it quite difficult to imagine how to project that to such high frequencies, you know, as a visualisation. But I guess the point is we can't. But, no, uh, I, I've been asked that many times, though, when people are saying, like, why can't I see it moving? Like the surface of the, the transducer that we have in the lab or something. Yeah, okay. You mentioned a transducer. Is there a simple way of describing what a transducer is? Yeah, so the the transducers are, yeah, what I mean by it's the thing that generates the ultrasound. So a transducer is something that transfers one thing to another thing, converts one thing to another thing. So in this case, it's converting the voltage to a movement, to like an oscillation, which is what creates the sound. So if you go to have an ultrasound and you have this thing that the sonographer holds in their hand, the wire coming out of it, that's often called a probe or a transducer or an array transducer or imaging array. And so when you're designing these transducer arrays for your neuromodulation, what do they physically look like? Is it like having a ultrasound probe that we imagine on a pregnant woman's belly being held against the head or are they looking completely different? They look a bit different to that like an imaging array they're normally eight centimeters long and you know centimeter wide or something like that it's like a line of rectangular elements often maybe like 128 of them or something in a line sort of squished together but the the array that we've built to do this neuromodulation in the brain is made up of 256 individual little sources but each one of them is a small round source that's a few millimetres across and they're sort of positioned on a bowl basically so on a helmet that your head can go into and they're just positioned around quite sparsely so they're not very close to each other 256 is not a lot to fill up something that covers your entire head 
Oh, so it does actually, I was kind of imagining that you would be directing it from one angle into the head, but you're actually covering the whole head and focusing the ultrasound yeah. part of the brain. Yeah, like so it's that. basically the sources themselves in our system don't move. They're fixed into this sort of helmet that the participant puts their head into. And then moving the field around is done entirely electronically just by firing the elements at different times. So thinking of description of ultrasound as, as like the wave along the slinky or thinking more perhaps less metaphorically about it being, you know, vibration of particles. I guess when you're focusing these waves in your helmet, you are picking a spot inside the head and you're really vibrating it there because all these waves are coming together and they're really they're vibrating all together at that time. How does that link to the therapeutic effects that you can expect from ultrasound? I'm interested in that from, from a high food perspective but, and from a, the neuro-stim perspective. I guess high food is maybe the easiest one to think about first. As you said, at that point that you've chosen at the focus, the volume is much higher. All of the sound waves arrive there in phase, which means that they sort of all arrive lined up at the same time. And then when you add them all together, you end up with a big pressure, a high volume. But in all the other positions around it, then the sound doesn't add up in the same way. So if you imagine them as like lots of beams, so if each one of these little sources is shining like a torch beam towards the middle, that's only the point when they all cross over where you get a high volume and everywhere else the volume is much lower. So that means that if you're doing the high fear and you're trying to heat something up, then you only heat it up somewhere around that small spot and not anywhere else in the brain. And then it's similar for the other applications, so the neuromodulation and then things like these other therapies that are used to deliver drugs across the blood-brain barrier, for example, where people target one region of the brain to open this barrier and let drugs across. So they also pinpoint in one area. It's the same idea that you want only the volume to be high in one place and not everywhere else. It's just that that volume is a lot lower if you're not trying to heat the tissue. I like this use of volume of ultrasound. It's the idea of being very loud. Very loud. Yeah, I mean, we, so we talk about pressure. It's just, yeah, how big is the actual pressure that's created by the sound? But yeah, I guess it's similar to thinking about volume as high there. And in terms of what it does when it gets there, in the high food case, I guess I can understand that if you shake something a lot, it might heat up. Is there more to it than that? Yeah, I guess it's the absorption happens by a few different mechanisms. Basically, you're just trying to vibrate these particles and because the material has some like stiffness and like imagine a gloopy liquid. Then the as you try and move something backwards and forwards, there's some resistance mm. to that. Yeah. So you just lose some of the energy and that kind of resistance to the to the motion. And that happens more at higher frequencies when you try to make the vibration faster. In the neurostimulation case, presumably we're not heating. No. I know you said it's not particularly well understood, but is it possible to say what might be happening? We're quickly vibrating clusters of neurons and that's having some effect. Yeah, so I think people are leaning towards thinking that it, it looks like it's some kind of mechanical effect on the cell. So maybe you change like the membrane stiffness or you activate these channels that cells have on their walls, like mechanosensitive ion channels, and they let the ions in and out and then that changes the voltage on either side of the cell membrane and then that's what causes the cell to fire. But yeah, it's not 100% understood yet, but it might be something along those lines. You're not heating it up, but you're just literally kind of wobbling the cell, maybe. Some things aren't well understood. You can kind of think, well, OK, we don't understand that very well, but I can see how they stumbled into it. I can't see how someone accidentally discovered this. <laughs> it's been around for a very long time. So the first work on neuromodulation was done a really long time ago. It was like literally in the 50s or something like that. I think they had problems sort of getting into the skull. But were, yeah, some people that did experiments on like frog's legs and could make them twitch. And then it all kind of came back around, yeah, maybe like 10 or 15 years ago when people started doing this on mice. And there's all these videos that were 
being played at conferences where they'd coupled an ultrasound source to a mouse's head and, and they could make its whiskers twitch or its tail wag or its legs move by turning the ultrasound on. And how long has it been being done on humans? It's really increased in the last few years. There's more and more studies. So there's lots of people doing studies on mice and rats and small animals and then monkeys, all on human primates. And then in recent years, there's been more studies done on, on humans. And I guess one of the most obvious questions is, is it dangerous? Like, I'm, I'm not jumping at the idea of like volunteering for one of your studies, if I'm honest. <laughs> it's not just that. It's, you know, we just heard about this heating therapy. Yeah, exactly. At what point are you, are you sure that you're not accidentally heating the tissue? So we've done a lot of modelling studies to work out what the heating would be. And that's always done like thinking about the worst case scenario of all the energy was absorbed somewhere. The pressure amplitudes are lower than the diagnostic imaging amplitudes. But the difference is in diagnostic imaging, you get a series of very short pulses of only a few cycles long. But in this neuromodulation, you have much longer bursts of sound. So the vibration carries on for a lot longer. Still talking about a few hundred milliseconds. Those have kind of been the guidelines that people have used. What's safe in imaging and what's been shown to have no effect of years of evidence. And then we'll try and stay within those limits. And, yeah, and do modelling and calculate the temperature rises and things like that. Have you had neuromodulation done to yourself? Yeah, yeah. What was that <laughs> like as an experience? Like, talk us through it. So the worst part of it for me was that sometimes you could hear a really high-pitched noise, which was a bit uncomfortable. But yeah, you can't feel anything. So yeah, we did a study to look at exactly that. Lots of the human studies that have been done, it turns out that perhaps people could hear when the transducer, when the source was being turned on and off, which you know may have interfered with the brain activity that was recorded, because obviously then your brain hears the noise and does something, and that might be what you recorded rather than some change that was caused by the ultrasound itself. So we did a study actually to try and look at that, where we tried to change the way that we turned the sound on and off and how often we turned it on and off and things like that to see if people could hear it and what it sounded like and if we could make the sound go away. Yeah. Could you make the sound go away? We could make it so that most people couldn't hear it anymore. I knew how we'd done the modelling and the checking that it was safe. I checked the numbers. I thought it was OK. <laughs> nice to be able to check it yourself, I think, before you uh, volunteer for these new ideas. Well, we also had to get ethical approval. So it was checked by other people for that study and then also using the, the kind of more sophisticated helmet array. So all these things will go through this process of, of checking by other people before you're allowed to just start experimenting on people. Just for perspective, Eddie. How much higher are the pressures used in HIFU compared to the pressures used in, say, imaging or, or the neurostimulation? So, yeah, it's slightly difficult to say. Maybe in HIFU, it's going to be at least, I don't know, like five or ten times higher amplitudes. That's surprisingly um, not, as, not as big a difference as I might. But that, that's only because a lot of the energy is absorbed in the body. So if you, yeah, this is probably too much detail for, to actually go in the podcast, but if you... If you drive the sources in the way that they're driven for HIFU in water, then you get enormous pressures of like 100 megapascals or something. Oh, OK. Yeah, this is but what when I... you put that in the body, most of that energy is absorbed before you get this kind of runaway effect of high frequencies being generated, which are absorbed preferentially. So yeah. if you sort of thought about it before the tissue was put there, they'd be orders of magnitude higher. Mm. Yeah. OK. So what is like one of the biggest clinical applications you can imagine coming out of this neuromodulation with ultrasound? One of the applications that we'd originally thought about was Parkinson's disease. So people often suffer from really bad tremors, which makes them very mobile and it's very difficult to maybe even to eat or to write. So often these patients would end up on long term drug therapy, which can become less effective after some time. 
the tremors might be caused by a particular area of the brain malfunctioning, firing the neurons when it shouldn't be, which causes your muscles to move. You know, one option could be that you could have brain surgery to remove that area or to implant some kind of electrical stimulator, a bit like people have heart pacemakers. You can have a similar kind of thing in the brain. And the idea is that you can do modulation to do that instead, but completely non-invasively. So there's no surgery, there's no long-term drug use. And it, the idea is that the patient would go into the hospital, get into the helmet, have their therapy, you know, after the plan's been done and everything like that. They wouldn't be unconscious or anything while this is happening. There's no surgery. And then they go away and that lasts for some months or they have to come back. And how far away are you from clinical trial on something like that? Is it quite far away? or? Is... I think for us in our system, there's quite a few steps before we get to that point. At the moment, people are still looking at the effects and how long does that effect last after you've done mm. the treatment? And how do you work out whether you're stimulating some activity or suppressing some activity? Like, is there a threshold? Well, it sounds like an amazing application and good motivation to keep going with the research. But speaking of your research, you've recently won a UKRI fellowship, which is on a completely different topic, but still using ultrasound. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what your new fellowship is focused on. Sure, it is a different application of ultrasound. What I'm trying to do is develop a method of rewarming tissues that have been frozen for storage, basically very rapidly and very uniformly in a controlled way by using ultrasound to do that. In the same way that I said in high fear, we focus the sound into the body and heat bits of tissue. In this application, the idea is to focus the sound into a piece of frozen biological material and to warm it up. When do you come across frozen biological material? Because I'm kind of imagining like people who've been cryogenically frozen, but I imagine <laughs> starting on a bit of a smaller scale than that. Yeah. I think that seems to be a completely separate branch of science. Yeah, I am not going to defrost any whole humans. <laughs> never say never, Ellie. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the moment, I guess often things like embryos and eggs and sperm and things like that are frozen. They're very small and you can freeze them very, very quickly or, or not even frozen. They're vitrified, which means that they literally plunge them into liquid nitrogen and they're cooled down so rapidly that they just stop moving and they're frozen in this sort of glassy state rather than forming ice crystals but then in order to warm them up again without damaging them so that you could then use them you have to warm them up very quickly otherwise the ice starts to form as they warm up and then that can literally pull the cells apart and things like that which you don't want with larger bits of tissue and they might be frozen more slowly but then you still have this problem that you need to warm them up quite quickly and quite uniformly so you can imagine if you had a big chunk of tissue or like a whole organ so you had a whole kidney and you'd frozen it and then you tried to warm it up again if you do that the way that it's normally done at the moment which is just to put it in a bath of warm water the outside will get warm but the middle will still be frozen mm -hmm. um, and that can cause stress across the tissue which can literally cause it to crack but then also as it's kind of warming up slowly then ice starts to form even more and then you can damage the cells and things just because of the ice so to avoid that happening, you basically need to warm the whole thing up at the same time quite quickly. That's what ultrasound could help with? Yeah, potentially that's the idea. So that's what I'm trying to work out, whether it can be used to do that. When you immerse it in the water bath, you've just got this warm surroundings. So the heat is just conducted through the solid and warms it up slowly, but it takes a while for that heat to transfer into the middle. But with ultrasound, you can deposit the energy deep into the body in these other therapies. So the idea is that you would be able to warm the frozen stuff up from the inside a similar concept when you put your food in the microwave that the microwaves are traveling through and depositing energy inside the food and warming it up and there's been some research where people have done that for this frozen biological tissue but you get these problems as i'm sure you've all had when you, you microwave something 
and you get one bit that's like really hot and the bit next to it is still frozen. Yeah, it's really hard to defrost a chicken breast, for example, <laughs> without yeah. cooking a little bit and leaving a little bit of it still frozen. Yeah, I think microwaves are maybe more difficult to shape the field and decide where you want to put the energy. But also they have this effect where you get this kind of runaway heating because as the temperature of the food increases, it absorbs the microwaves more strongly. So the hot bits get hotter and the cold bits stay cold. It looks like ultrasound doesn't have that problem, which will help keep things a bit more even. So to go back to this point you've made about freezing things and heating them up quickly, sounds like a motivation for that is that it avoids problems caused by ice. Is that because if you freeze it very quickly, water can't get there? Is it water in the surrounding material that would otherwise diffuse to that position and become ice? Or am I missing an obvious reason why ice would appear otherwise? Yeah, it's sort of like that. It's to do with the mechanics of ice formation. I'm definitely not an expert in this. Okay. Um, but as you freeze, as you lower the temperature, then the formation of the ice is slower than as you're warming it up. As you freeze the tissue, then the ice might start to form, right? Which means that you get these little nuclei, they're called, so little blobs of maybe a single ice crystal or something, which the other ones would grow next to. And they're already there. So then when you warm the tissue up again, that's already happened. So then if you don't go through that region quickly enough, then you get ice forming around these little bits of ice that are already there, which is what you want to avoid. So you're now investigating and I assume like building a system that you can start to unfreeze bits of tissue. Like what, what does that look like? Because you're kind of entering a new scientific field. How do you get started? Yeah, we have started building something. Or I say we, I haven't started building anything. Ray, who's the postdoc that works on this with me, he started building a little device. And the idea is that we want to start by trying to replicate what's done already. We want to start with a little vial, a little plastic tube full of frozen stuff and warm it up which would be the same kind of size and stuff that someone would normally take out of a freezer and put in a water bath and then use for some biology experiment or something like that. So he's been building this device where he's basically got the ultrasound source is now shaped like a tube and all the sound just is focused in the middle of it. And that's where you put your frozen stuff. Starting simple. But yeah, there's a lot of kind of interesting physics to think about. We're also looking at starting to have a look at the properties of frozen materials as well, because we need to understand how fast does the sound travel in them and how dense are they and how much they absorb the sound, how much they scatter sound, things like that. We're starting off by answering some of the background questions. Sounds similar to the treatment planning you described when it came to you're going to need to be able to model the sound propagation through this frozen thing in order to evenly or even maybe unevenly reheat it. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, it sounds completely different. It's a different application, but actually the sort of day-to-day -day things that we have to do, the stuff that we're going to go into the lab and actually do all day are basically the same things. So it's about how do we generate the sound in the right way? How do we measure what's coming out of sources? How do we simulate where the sound is going? How do we know something about the materials it's travelling through? Yeah, they're the same questions. So it sounds like there's a lot of physics involved. That's your background, you're a physicist. I was just wondering how you got to this point. A lot of our listeners will be, you know, thinking maybe of medical physics as a career. So what's your background and how did you get here? Yeah, so I am a physicist. I did an undergraduate degree in physics with astrophysics and then decided that I'd like to do something with a bit more of a real world application. So I then went into medical physics and I did the NHS clinical scientist medical physics training programme for a couple of years and did some work in the hospital on ultrasound and but also radiotherapy and diagnostic radiology. And then at the end of that, I decided that I'd quite enjoyed doing the ultrasound and I'd like to do a bit more of that. So I went and did a PhD. That was actually on ultrasound bioeffects. So I did learn a little bit about cell biology and things like that. And then I ended up working at the National Physical Laboratory 
So that was very much getting a foundation in how to measure ultrasound, how to calibrate ultrasound measurement equipment and things like that. Also quite a lot of research still looking at ultrasound bioeffects. And then I came to UCL, been doing lots more measurement of ultrasound, modelling of ultrasound and checking that our models agree with our measurements. It's interesting that you've sort of worked in lots of different spaces, whether it's been clinical or academic or, yeah, in the MPL, a good range of spaces where medical physics goes into. Yeah, there are lots of different career options, I think. And it's kind of interesting, having worked in a few different ones, that you get to see how they all overlap and interact with each other. But yeah, I guess there's no rush to get to the one that you decide to do in the end. You'll get there, really, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do next. <laughs> I've been here long enough. Um, but I think, it, you know, it's nice to explore different things and see how you like working. You know, it's kind of the same physics and engineering that I've been doing, but doing it in a different environment means that your day-to-day work is a bit different. All right, well, thanks to Dr. Martin for sharing her research and career with us. This podcast was presented by Dr. Gemma Bale with myself, Dr. Jamie Guggenheim. It was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin McLeod. So if you like this podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of each month, covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering. If you're interested in studying at UCL, please visit the department website at www.ucl.ac.uk slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering. We have undergraduate and master's courses, including study by distance learning and PhD vacancies, which can also be found at various times throughout the year. You might also consider following the department on Twitter at UCLMEDPHYS. Bye for now.